Well, good morning. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> uh, man, it's good. it's good to be back with everyone to open up God's Word. Uh, we looked last week at, at one verse. If you were not with us, or if you were, that was John chapter 14, uh, verse 6. A very foundational verse, a very central verse. When we, when we, if we want to have a proper Christology or proper uh, doctrine of Christ, this verse really lends to much of what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And we spoke last week of the exclusivity of Christ, that there is one Savior for all men, for all, uh, for all time. As Jesus said there, one of his famous I am statements, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He lays this, this claim of absolute exclusivity, that there is no other way to God, there's no other Savior, that He is the embodiment of truth, the embodiment of life. It's found in Him. And as we've seen in this section, um, Jesus has been seeking to comfort His disciples. He just got done telling them in the end of chapter 13 that He was going to leave, depart from them, and that where He was going, they could not come. And we would understand why they might be discouraged at that and and he then tells Peter, who if there's a leader of the twelve, I think it, we'd probably say it was Peter. He tells Peter, no, and you're actually going to deny me three times tonight. Before the rooster even crows this morning, you'll have denied me three times. And as we see in the other Gospels in this account, um, he tells the whole group, every one of you is going to fall away from me this, this, this evening. So Jesus gives in this section from John chapter 14, verse 1, and through verse 14, three promises in an attempt to comfort his disciples. He, uh, we saw one already, and that was that he was going to his father's house, that he was preparing a place, and that he would return. He will come again, and he will take you, he says, to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And we talked that sermon a couple weeks back about heaven, about heaven now, the intermediate state, and about Glory, then the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, he will destroy this earth and he will make all things new and we will dwell there forever with glorified, resurrected bodies. There will be no sun, there will be no light because God will be in the midst of that place and he will be the light. We talked about the blessed hope of Christians that Jesus is coming back. Praise God, right? <laughs> Jesus is returning one day. He will return to take home his bride. And we talked about that blessed hope, and today we're going to get into the second promise that Jesus gives his disciples. So let's read, and we're going to pick up, I'm going to read verse 6 again through verse 12 today. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father, and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, 
But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you and pray, and we recognize that we lack strength, that we lack ability, that we lack a mind to comprehend the things of God, that these are things that are spiritually discerned. So we pray today, O oh God, that you might send your Spirit, that you might fill us with your Spirit, that you might fill this place with your Spirit, and that you might teach us individually and corporately, that you might, that you might give us understanding and insight, that you would keep any falsehood, any error that comes out of my mouth, that it might fall on deaf ears. Pray that you might apply your word to our souls, that you might bring conviction where it is needed, that you might strengthen faith where it is needed, that you might call and send according to your good pleasure, that you might save, that you might transfer souls today from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of your son. We, we, we call on you for all of these things, for without you we can do nothing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been said by some that theology really, really doesn't matter. Right? That, that when we really get specific about theology, that all that really happens is that churches begin to divide. That that's just um, stuff for textbooks and stuff for classrooms, but it doesn't have a lot of practical application for the person in the pew, for all of us normal, everyday Christians. <laughs> we, I hope so. <laughs> I think we are. We are normal, everyday Christians, robed in the righteousness of Christ, saved by His grace. Amen. That was a compliment, Steve. <laughs> but what is the word theology? I mean, what does it actually mean? It's... it's it's simply theos, God, and ology is the word logos, which, is, which means word. So it's words about God or the study of God. Who would not want to know God, right? Who would not want to, want, to, want to know their creator, would not want to study God? I think it's a little bit funny because sometimes we hear the words, you know, someone might say, I just, I just, I just want to love Jesus and all that doctrine stuff, all that specificity, all that stuff. No, that's, that's irrelevant. I just want to... I just love Jesus, and that's enough. And in a, in a simple way, it is. Right? No one needs a PhD in theology to, to be a Christian. But we wouldn't say that in any of our other relationships. Right? You wouldn't have a little marriage seminar and a guy standing up here saying, all right, husbands, just tell your wives you love them. Don't get to know them. Don't remember what favorite flowers they have or the food they like or, or what kind of things speak to them and show love. Just love them generally. You just got to tell them you love them. That's all that love requires. No, you would throw him out. You'd say, this guy doesn't know anything. He's probably never been married, or maybe he's got a couple, you know, broken marriages behind him. But for some reason, when it comes to God, we, we, we say things like that. I'm just going to love Jesus. And there's danger there. I mean, there's many dangers. One danger is you might ask the question, well, which Jesus is it that you love? Because often when people say that, it's really a Jesus of our own invention, a Jesus of our own creation that oftentimes looks a lot like us. And he really, he really likes the things and, and, and is um, 
focused on the things that we are focused on. But as we look at this text today, Jesus is going to make a very doctrinal statement, some very theological claims that Jesus makes in this text. And I hope to show why these things are so vital that we believe them as Christians. So chapter 14, again, verse 8, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. You know, after all that Jesus has done to this point, after all that he's taught, imagine sitting under the teaching ministry of Jesus every day for three years. Now, when Jesus was 12, he went in the temple and he marveled all the scholars of his day. When he was 12, right, of the acumen, the ability that this kid had. And imagine him then now, 20 years later, and you sat under his teaching every single day. You saw his works. You saw the miracles. You saw the healings, the miraculous feedings, the restored withered hands, and the lepers cleansed, and the dead raised. And Philip says this thing as if it's kind of honorable. You know, Jesus, just, just all you got to do is show us the Father, and, and we'll believe. After all that Christ has done, after all that he said, after all that he's taught, Philip has failed to see the glory of Christ right before his eyes. He has failed to see the full expression of deity dwelling bodily in the person of the Son. He has failed to see that Jesus, as we read last week, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And it seems that Philip may be here elevating the Father a bit above Christ. Now, if, if you would just show us him, then we would believe all this stuff. We wouldn't, we wouldn't need any more. We would have no more doubt if you would finally show us the Father. And I think we can be sympathetic with these guys. They were Jews. They were hardcore monotheists. There's one God. And the God that they believed in and the God that we believed in is a transcendent God. He is nothing like us. And to have this man stand before them and say, I am God, had to be very difficult to grasp. And Jesus would do a miracle and they would be in awe and they would fear and tremble. And then they'd be like, what? Can he really be can he really be God? I mean, here he is walking with us. He took a nap today. He got tired, you know? And you can hear, I think, Jesus' discouragement again a bit in his words. He says to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? After all of this time, all of these years, all of the things that we've done together, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, as Jesus has done many times in the book of John, here he begins to appeal to the oneness and unity of the Trinity. The oneness and unity of the Trinity. That the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. But they are so united in, in will, in purpose, and in character, that Jesus would say, to know the Son is to know the Father, and to know the Father is to know the Son. We looked at John 1.18 last week where it says that no one has ever seen God, but the only God or the only Son of God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has revealed the Father, Jesus has. He has exegeted Him. So to know Christ is to know the Father. Verse 10, He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, do you see this complete unity of Father and Son? He says the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. And you know what's awesome is that Paul picks up that same language, and then he says, Christian, and you are in Christ. Imagine that. That is, as 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 Jesus says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. This perfect unity and oneness within the Godhead, within the Trinity. And then Paul would say, and now, Christian, Jesus is in you. You are in Christ. That is a glorious statement that we could probably meditate on for the rest of our lives and never fully grasp. He says that the Son speaks with the authority of the Father. So when Jesus came to the earth, he didn't say, hey, I'm a guy that, you've never, that you don't know. My words have all this weight. You must believe what I say. No, he said, I come with authority from heaven. I come with the authority of the Creator, of God Himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I speak on His behalf. That means that when Jesus speaks, He speaks the Word of God, because He is the Word of God. He says, the Father dwells in the Son, and the Father works through the Son. Do you see the unity here of Father and Son? It has been said that the Father is the grand architect of creation and redemption, and that the Son is His agent of creation and redemption. It is the Son who brings about the Father's plan. Colossians 1.16 speaks of Christ and says, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. John 1.3 says something similar. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is God's agent of creation. He is the one that brought God's plan to be. But also, He is the agent of redemption. He is the one that actually accomplishes this salvation that has been planned by the Father from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Remember in John 6, when Jesus is there speaking to the crowds, John 6, 37, He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We see there that the Father has a plan. He has a people given to the Son, and the Son has been sent to accomplish, to purchase the redemption of these people. And He says, all that the Father has given me, I will never cast out, and I will raise them up on that last day. And as He speaks here to Philip, He says, if you cannot believe all of this, if you can't grasp that the Father is in me, that I am in the Father. He says, believe on account of the works. Look at the things that I have done. 
Look at the things that I have done as a man who walks before you and then believe that my words are true. So we would say that the unity of the persons in the Trinity and the deity of Christ are revealed through the work of Jesus. As he does the works of the Father, as it says in Hebrews, as he does the works of the powers of the age to come, as literally supernatural work is done through Christ, this oneness that he has with the Father and the fact that he is God is, is confirmed or revealed because he can do miracles, basically. And again here, he's making an appeal to his deity, that Jesus is God himself, not less than the Father, not something like the Father, but that he is equal to the Father. And this doctrine of the deity of Christ is absolutely central to Christianity. And it's a doctrine that the church has thought long and hard about. So as we come today in 2020, you know, sometimes we feel like, well, I'm just a Christian picking up my Bible kind of with a blank slate, and I'm just understanding the Scriptures on my own with the Spirit. But we enter into a conversation that has been taking place for 2,000 years. As the church has wrestled with these doctrines, what often happens is heresies, heresies rise up. Right? And we talked about this, I think, in you know, Thursday night, Fundamentals of the Faith thing. But in the 4th century, uh, there was a heretic. He was branded a heretic named Arius. And he, had a, he was known for a saying that there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. That at some point in history, even if it was way before creation, that Jesus began. Jesus was created. Right? And he was a very charismatic figure. He could... He could sing really well, and he actually put his heresy into songs. If you want to sway people, you, you sing, right? Lies, and that's how you, you, you get to captivate the hearts of people. But so he is kind of propagating his, his false teaching, and the church comes together and says, we have, to, we have to do something about this. We have to come together and, and agree upon what do we believe about Jesus? Is he fully God, or is he not? Is this teaching true? And that is the purpose of what is known as the Council of Nicaea. Maybe you've heard of it around 325. Uh, don't listen to what you hear on the History Channel about the Council of Nicaea because the History Channel is not a reputable source when it comes to Christianity. It is not where the books of the Bible were, were agreed upon, where they just threw out some and chose others. But the deity of Christ was at stake at the Council of Nicaea. And this whole battle took place over one single Greek letter, which is, the, which is an I in uh, English, whether Jesus was homoousios or homoousios, same substance as the Father or similar substance. And there was men that were persecuted and willing to die for this one single letter, that Jesus is the same substance with the Father. And I want to read uh, a little piece of the Nicene Creed. So they got together and said, what do we believe about the deity of Christ? And they tried to answer that question with precision and agree upon what we believe that the Bible teaches about his divinity. It says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one, and here's that word, substance, homoousios, with the Father, 
by whom all things were made. That is the, has anybody ever been in a church where the Nicene Creed was recited? Anybody? This guy over here? It's not a Catholic document. Uh, many people think that it's just a, a Catholic thing. It's not. Um, but this is, the, this is what the church has confessed about the deity of Christ since the 4th century. doesn't mean that doctrine was, was invented at that point, but it was where the church kind of nailed down with precision. What do we believe about Christ? And I know some people at times are hesitant when it comes to creeds and confession, um, but I, 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 I understand that um, to a degree. You know, people say, well, that's man's writings. It's not scripture, and, and I agree with that. But insofar as they summarize Scripture, they, they, they can be authoritative, right? They're man's words, but if I say to you, Jesus Christ is the only Lord, you would amen that, right? I just made a creedal statement. I didn't, I didn't give you a Bible verse. It's not a direct Bible verse. I summed up the Bible's teaching. So the thing that I said is orthodox. It is authoritative because it accurately describes what the Bible teaches. And I think it's good that we want to be a confessional creedal people. We want to be in this conversation that the church has been having about the Bible for the last 2,000 years. So why does this all matter? Again, are we, are we not just splitting theological hairs? I mean, same substance, similar substance, does it really matter? I think it does. I think it matters greatly, especially with this doctrine here. Uh, just recently, there was a book published Volume 2 of a four-volume set called uh, Reformed Systematic Theology by Joel Beakey, Paul Smalley. Excellent work. Um, haven't read it all because it's about this big, <laughs> 1,200 pages. But I want to read to you. They give no less than 10 reasons why the deity of Christ is crucial to Christianity. I'm only going to give three. Why is this doctrine so important to Christianity? Why is it central? Why is it a hill that we must die on? Number one. Christ's deity is indispensable for salvation. Indispensable for salvation. If Christ is not God, then he cannot save his people from their sins. I mean, it's that simple. If Christ is not God, then he cannot save his people from their sins. The Savior had to accomplish everlasting righteousness for his people, even the righteousness of God. He had to bear the burden and pay the price for the countless sins of the many in whose place he died. He had to sovereignly lay down his life and take it up again in obedience to his Father. Having accomplished salvation, he must then apply that salvation to individuals all across the world that call upon his name to be saved all throughout history. Only God can do these things. Only God can do these things. Only God can, can achieve a perfect righteousness. Only God can bear the wrath of his father and, and bear it. Only God can then apply that redemption that he purchased to your soul that moment that you believed upon him in faith. Secondly, the deity of Christ is indispensable for Trinitarian spirituality. <laughs> Trinitarian, now we are Trinitarians, right? We are believers, not just in a, a, a single God with, 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 um, with one person, but there are three persons in the biblical God. And the deity of Christ is indispensable to our spirituality being Trinitarians. It says Christian prayer and public worship are profoundly shaped by the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not just some esoteric, abstract doctrine. 
He says, Christians enjoy access to the Father in the power of the Spirit through the Son. Right? So when we worship, we worship the Father empowered by the Spirit, and we come to the Father through the mediatorial work of the Son. And that mediatorial work depends upon His deity. The saints have distinct communion with God the Son, from whom we receive divine grace, and to whom we, reject, we, we, we direct our worship. Remove His deity, and we negate all that is distinctly Christian about our faith, worship, and living. And then lastly, this doctrine is indispensable for biblical fidelity or biblical faithfulness. It's not a secondary doctrine. Now, there's things that we can disagree on, right? Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. We don't want to be fundamentalists that every single doctrine is, is primary, and if you dis we disagree on anything. Because what happens when you have that sort of belief? You've got a really small circle, right? <laughs> you've got a really small circle around you, and everyone else is outside of the kingdom because they don't believe, like you do, that women shouldn't wear pants or some you know, thing that's not even in the Bible. But there are things that are hills to die on. And this is not a secondary doctrine, but a central one. It has been revealed in the Old Testament, and it is everywhere in the New. He says, those who fail to see the divine glory of Christ read the Bible with a veil over their hearts. If we would be faithful students of the Word, we must then accept this doctrine and allow it to transform our lives. Do you see that if we deny if we lose the deity of Christ, we lose the gospel itself. If we lose the deity of Christ, it destroys our worship and our practice as Christians, and it does violence to the clear teaching of the Word of God. It's not just something for a textbook or a theology class, but it is central to what it means to be a Christian. Jesus Christ is God, thus Jesus Christ is our King. Amen? So with that out of the way, I, I spoke of a promise here. And there's two in these few verses, um, but today we're just going to look at one. And it's seen in chapter 14 and verse 12. Jesus seeking to comfort his saints after he just told them, I'm leaving, I'm going away, I'm departing from you, you cannot come with me. He says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So the first promise here is that believers, as he leaves, believers will carry on the legacy and ministry of Christ. Now, this is an interesting verse. What, what, is, what does Jesus mean here by works? He says, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he doesn't even stop there. He says, greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So, so what does he mean by works? Uh, many would say that, that Jesus means here he speaks of miracles. He speaks of his signs and wonders. The works that I do, right, the signs and wonders, Whoever believes in me will do even greater works than I do. So let's think about that approach for a moment. Those that take that approach usually come down in one of two ways. Sometimes the thinking is that he speaks here only for apostles. Because certainly the apostles did signs and wonders in the book of Acts. We would all agree on that. It's, it's in the Bible. But I think there's two problems. If it's just speaking of the apostles, he said, whoever believes. 
And that seems to be as about as general as you can get. Whoever believes in me will do greater works. But also, I think as we read the book of Acts, we'd probably say they didn't do greater works than Jesus. They weren't raising the dead, at least as Christ was. They did similar works, but I don't think we would agree that they did greater works than Christ. So I don't think he's speaking just to the apostles. Others would say, no, of course he's speaking to us now, that whoever believes in Christ can do greater works than Jesus did, greater miracles, greater signs and wonders. So then we ask the question, well, what's going on? What's wrong with the church if that is the case? Often the answer is given that we just don't have enough faith. If we really had faith, then we could literally move mountains. We could tear a mountain off of its foundation if we had enough faith in Jesus. But the problem is that we just lack the faith. And I think if you take that road, if you go down that road, then we have to admit that the church has been woefully lacking in faith for the last 2,000 years. That really, we have no faith at all if anyone that believes can do the signs and wonders that Jesus did. It simply means we have to muster up enough faith. But if you look in church history, what has the church been known for? Is it miracles or is it gospel preaching? seems to me that if we look throughout church history, the power of the church has not been in an ability to perform miracles. It's been in the proclamation of the gospel and the transformation of nations and communities wherever the gospel goes. Let me, let me ask you a question. Why are we here today? Why do we in 2020 in Phoenix, Oregon, on the West Coast, in the United States, in North America, why do we even know about this Jesus man that died 2,000 years ago and went to a cross, and as the story goes, was resurrected. How is it that this story has traveled all the way to America? Not only traveled, but been preserved all this time. Consider how the faith has been preserved against attacks of emperors, dictators, and kings. There has been many a nation, many a people group that have tried to wipe out Christianity tried to burn all our Bibles, tried to persecute the church out of existence. The church has been under attack from the beginning. We see that with Christ. I mean, they killed him and his disciples, and on it goes throughout church history. But here Jesus dies with 11 men by his side. 11 men. And they go out with this message, and they turn the world on its head. The message of the gospel has traveled against all odds. It's traveled over continents, through hundreds if not thousands of different languages, cultural barriers, century after century after century. How can this be? How in the world can this be? I believe because of what Jesus says. He says, greater works will you do. Now, think about God's view of great works and ours. We think of the spectacular, visual, amazing, cool stuff. Does anybody remember those fireworks, those little snakes? They look like little black pieces of coal. Anybody ever had those before? Man, they're pathetic. They're not very cool. I don't know why they even make those, but when I was a kid, I thought they were cool. And this last 4th of July, we found some. They had them at the fireworks place, and I lit them up, and it's a little snake thing comes out, and it smokes. It's probably the most boring thing you ever saw. But you start adding a fountain, right? And you see 
lights coming out now, and it's making noise. It might even whistle and scream. Those are pretty cool. You take a bottle rocket, now you've got some height, some elevation happening, right? The thing launches, and you get the, the big dog of them all, mortars. Right? You have it all. You have height, you have visuals, you have sound. See, everyone's like, wow, yeah, fireworks. <laughs> We're drawn into the, <laughs> the spectacular, right? That's what we think is great, is visually stunning and amazing. But I think when God here speaks of greater works, he speaks of the worldwide expansion of the church and the gospel message, that the church would travel and reach the ends of the earth. Now consider really how small of a, a footprint Jesus' ministry had. He preached from Judea to Galilee. It's about 80 miles, and primarily in those two places. He went through Samaria. There's a little revival there next to a well. But mostly, he's in these two places. There's an 80-mile distance. And in his life, in his three years of ministry, that's really all that he dealt with. That would be uh, about here to Roseburg. From this church to Roseburg is actually 100 miles. And it would be as if he only ministered in the valley and in Roseburg, because he didn't really do in between. 30 years later, Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome, the church already planted in Rome, to a people he doesn't even know. He hasn't met these Christians. He didn't plant that church. But there's a church already in Rome in Italy, 2,522 miles from Jerusalem. In 30 years, the church has already grown. That's with no phones, no cars, no televangelists. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, no internet, no, no radio, none of that stuff, right? No billboards, no printing presses to hand out Bibles and pamphlets and all of that. None of those things. But in 30 years, the church has expanded 2,500 miles. That's basically from here to the border of Philadelphia in 30 years, in an ancient time. Greater works than these, I believe, is not specific miracles, but the breadth of gospel ministry that would explode around these 11 fishermen, normal guys, blue-collar working men. The global expansion of the good news, the planting of churches in every foreseeable place in the world at that time, the transformed lives that would follow, the pagans that were turning from idolatry and rampant immorality to, to, to be sanctified, living lives submitted to King Jesus. Right in a world where idolatry was everywhere. You know, read the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. There's just an amazing testimony of God's grace there. And it says that their, their testimony is spread around that region, that they see that they've turned from idols to the living God. That you have these Romans and these Greeks and these pagans that are worshiping this Jewish God, about this Jewish guy. How can this be? Because Jesus said that greater works will I do or will you do even greater than I did? Now we're not raising the dead. I don't think it's a lack of faith, but I think he speaks of the expansion of the gospel. Now, this promise, beloved, consider this promise. Let me read it again. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. This promise is for you today. Because what did he say? Whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me, he promises, not only will you do the works that he did, but with even greater effect, that you will take part in the global expansion of the church, in the global expansion of the kingdom of God. 
Why is that? It's because you are God's agent, God's ambassador, right? That you might be his instrument or his mouthpiece to a godless, God-hating pagans that they would become God-loving, Christ-exalting worshipers. And he has commissioned you, beloved. He has commissioned us all. Remember what he says in the text we love to call the Great Commission. Let me just read that. He says, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, sometimes we read that and we, or maybe not read that, but practically we think, okay, Jesus has authority in heaven, and this is Satan's place down here. Jesus is reigning up there, and this is Satan's world. But Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and because of that, go. Go, therefore, right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ now, right now, reigns over this earth, and he sends us out to do the work that he began. As we live in this post-truth, post-modern, post-Christian culture. I fear today, I really do fear today, that many Christians have lost confidence in the gospel. And we probably wouldn't say that. We would, we would heartily amen Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that, anyone that believes. But I think oftentimes our practice kind of betrays us. Our practice kind of betrays us, and it reveals that we've lost confidence in this gospel message. Now, let's just state the obvious. It is hard soil in the West today. It is hard soil to be plowed that needs to be turned up and turned over again and again. The West, in America and in this Western culture, it certainly is hard soil. But I fear that because of that, many Christians are discouraged that conversions aren't happening like we might hope that they would. You know, when we finally get the gall, get the courage to speak of Christ to someone, whether it's a family member, relative, acquaintance, stranger, and they just pff, walk away with indifference, couldn't care less, right? And we wonder, well, I thought that there was power in the gospel. I thought there was power in the gospel. And we live in a day, especially when people start talking about things like public preaching, open-air preaching, evangelism, just walking up to strangers, many would say, no, that just doesn't work. You can't, you, you don't do that today. That's foolish. It's a fool's errand because no one's going to listen to you. Right? You, you need to build a relationship for someone to hear what you have to say about Jesus. No one's going no to hear some guy on the street corner yelling in Jacksonville while they're shopping for their, <laughs> shopping for their toys. Um, but I want, to get, I, want to, I want to tell a really quick story uh, about a man that I do not know, kind of acquaintances on, on social media. He's a street preacher, and his name is Ryan Denton. And he, now this is, just, this is just shocking, I think, for many of us. He's from El Paso, Texas, and he was sent as a missionary to Houston. Or he's from New Mexico, and he was sent as a missionary. Now we think, as Americans, oh, we send missionaries overseas, right? They need the gospel out there, and we're going to be the senders. Man, we need the gospel here. Right, so he was sent by his church as a missionary to Houston, Texas, to evangelize two secular, God-hating universities. 
So he spends almost every day of the week preaching publicly at the universities. And that's some of the hardest soil there is. Right? All the postmodern feminism, all that stuff is, is infiltrated the universities. So you got mockers, you got scoffers, you got everything you could imagine. People doing, saying, trying to shut you down, screaming. And there he is, every day, preaching the gospel. And it just started in the first uh, beginning of the semester, so it's been about four months. And he told the story just the other day of, a, of, a, of their, their, their greatest heckler who was out there just heckling away. And if you go anywhere and stand on the street and open up a Bible, you're going to have hecklers. It's just, it's just how it goes. And this guy was vulgar. He was crude. He was aggressive. He mocked the preaching. He was ridiculing them. He was doing all the stuff hecklers do. But they said they noticed that over time, he kind of quieted down a bit. His, his heckling stopped, and he started to listen to the preaching. He, and his, and his, his attitude, his heart kind of softened a bit. It, it changed. He had this really, uh, you know, this opposition, this, this, this antagonist um, approach. But his heart began to soften. And he said, one day the guy walked up to him and said, can I get a Bible? And they were kind of shocked, right? And they've been having conversations. And the guy was kind of coming around to the gospel message. And he had just, I think this was just last Saturday, he had got a message uh, about this guy that he called upon the name of the Lord, was baptized, and became a born-again believer, right? I shared this on social media. You might have seen it. That was from open-air preaching on a college campus, where so many would say, why would you even bother with that? That's, that's casting your pearls before swine. You know, they're just ridiculing you. They're swearing, cussing, screaming obscenities. They're not going to hear what you have to say. But God, by His grace, <laughs> opened that sinner's heart. God did that. That wasn't the intellect of the college student. He hated God at the beginning of the semester. And now he's rejoicing and calling Jesus his Lord. Beloved, that is, that is good news. Now, we wish that would happen much more often. But that is good news, and God is still at work. His word does not return void. Now, sometimes there are seasons in nations and geographical areas where God is just very gracious, and he pours out mercy upon a people, and there's many conversions. Hearts are open to the gospel message. They receive it with joy. And there's, and there's harvests that are reaped. But there's often times where God, according to his good pleasure, allows the word to go forth, and all it seems to do is harden hearts. All it seems to do is push people more away. But regardless of the result that we see with our eyes, his word never returns void, and it always accomplishes the purpose for which it goes out. And his promise here in this verse, beloved, is that you get to take part in this work. We get to take part in the building of the kingdom of God. Remember, it was Jesus himself that said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what that means is that the degradation of morality in the, met, in the West cannot stop the spread of the gospel and the advancement of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means immoral societies, aggressive college students, immoral presidents and vice presidents that oppose the work of Christ. 
These things cannot stop the expansion of the kingdom of God. Whether we see it with our eyes as we would like to, as Scripture says that we are to look at things not that are seen, but, but that are unseen. That we're supposed to live with faith, and really we need to look at the clear teaching of Scripture. Again, that Christ will build His church. That the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. And He sends us out with His full authority, and He promises to be with us until the end of the age. Two last things I want to say, two pieces of application according to this promise and according to Jesus' statements that He is God, the Father is in Him, He is in the Father. Number one, Christ is King. Christ is King. And we can say that because Christ is God. But Christ is King. And I think we, 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 we must not lose sight of this truth because we find ourselves today in a world that is hostile to our king, as hostile to his kingdom, hostile to his word, hostile to his law. We have governments that are seeking to usurp the authority of King Jesus, meddling in the affairs of the church. And the church, I think if we're honest at times, we look around and the church seems to have little influence. Right? The kingdom of God seems to have little power at times in this world. But we cannot forget that Christ is king that we serve an omnipotent, immortal, all-wise, sovereign king. And our allegiance in this life, our allegiance must be, first and foremost, to his commands, his law, his word, his authority, his kingdom. It says in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. And as servants, then, of King Jesus, we must stand for the values, principles of his kingdom, and we must heed the commands of our king. And he, and he sends us all, right? In whatever capacity, he sends us all. So my second point, number one, Christ is king. Number two, go therefore. I mean, it's, that, it's really that simple. Go therefore. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he tells us because of that, as his servants, as his people, we ought to then go. Trusting him trusting that we are in His hands, that the salvation of the lost are in His hands, the salvation of our loved ones is in His hands. Remember what He said, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater than these that I do will He do. Jesus gives this promise to His disciples because He's leaving them, seeking to give them some encouragement. But I think we need the same encouragement today, do we not? We look around in this world, and it can be difficult to see the hand of God. It can be difficult to see God working. We wonder, does the gospel have any power? Are people even going to listen? Are they going to respond? But the promise, again, is to whoever believes that he will do his works. Now, I understand. Let me just be clear here. Uh, I understand that not everyone is called to stand on a street corner on a soapbox and preach the gospel. And I don't want you to hear me elevating that sort of evangelism over any other sort of evangelism. But I mention that often because I do believe there is a great need in our day for a public proclamation of Christ, that the gospel would be brought to the public square because people aren't going to come to our church. Right? They're not going to come here curious, investigating. If they are, God's already doing a work. 
But they need the gospel in the streets. And if you have any desire, any inkling to, to go out, to engage the culture, to speak, maybe we'll call that cold call evangelism, or to stand in the public square with the Bible, talk to me. Talk to Trevor. Trevor will go out with you every single day if you are willing. This guy, this guy's zealous. Uh, talk to Dustin. Talk to Ben, Robbie, Matt, all these guys. Uh, there's so much opportunity out there, but let's not limit it to the street. All right, what about mothers, home with your children, raising kids? Feed Christ to the souls of your kids. Call them lovingly to submit to King Jesus. Teach them to obey all of his commands, as he said. Uh, maybe in the workplace. Maybe right now you're so hunkered down with work that you couldn't imagine getting out on the street or, or doing some sort of outreach-type situation. Whether you're in an office, a cubicle, a shop, a job site, plant your flag as an ambassador of King Jesus. Be his agent of transformation. Let the world know that you're a follower of Christ, that you serve the one and only King of Kings. Maybe you're stuck in your home and you cannot get out much physically uh, because of health reasons or whatever. I understand that. That's, that's part of life. But when people come to your home, let them know that this house is an embassy for the gospel and that you are an ambassador with a message of reconciliation. In whatever capacity God has placed you, with whatever ability He has given you, everyone who believes, Jesus says, is to continue in the legacy and ministry of King Jesus. Make much of Christ and trust Him with the result.